Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, current, and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome our guest, writer, director, and cinematographer, Peter Himes. Welcome, Peter. Uh, thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Well, you know, having somebody on my podcast like you uh, is a, a blessing because you've seen so much of the movie business over the years. And there's so much prognostication going on about the future of movies these days, you know, with all the streaming going on and pe less people going into the movie theaters. I'm curious from your point of view, if you were to look into a crystal ball and say where the movie business is headed, what what would you say its future is? Has it changed that much? Are we going to see something totally different in the future? I I don't know if I'm qualified to to, to say. I I really don't know. Obviously, the ability to see movies, um, not in the theatrical experience, is different. Uh, much more accessible to a lot of people. Um, you know, I, I'm somebody who spent my life trying to make things look and sound a certain way. Uh, and the idea that people are watching things on their telephones to me is absolutely horrifying. Um, it seems to go against everything that a motion picture is supposed to be about. Um, on the other hand, it's maybe because I just I've grown up a certain way. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, well, they've been forecasting the doom of the um, theatrical experience since the introduction of uh, VHS uh, 30, 35 years ago. Uh, it seems to me that, well, there's different audiences, obviously. There's young people, 12 to 24, and then there's everybody else. And it seems to me that, uh, as we talked about uh, a few weeks ago, I think that the studios seem to have totally bought into the importance of that young audience with their fare, what they're producing for the large part. Um, I, I, think, just, yeah. I just don't see how that's any different. I, I just remember growing up with exactly that demographic in mind. I remember growing up with, with you know, if, if you read the... Uh, that book, which I wasn't crazy about, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, you know, he blames Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and, and the blockbuster as, as the, the kind of dearth, the death of, of, of the kind of brave and bold movies where I'm somebody who thinks that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were brilliant and I loved going to their movies and I still do. Um, Older people don't run out to go to movies. They just don't. And they never did. Um, in the 1930s, I believe, I remember seeing a statistic in the 1930s, 80% of the American public went to the movies every week. When I was a kid, a little kid, my best friend Stephen and I used to go to the movies. We didn't go to see a movie. We went to the movies. Uh, there was a double feature. Uh, the operative phrase when I was a kid was, this is where I came in. Remember, you, you, you went for the second feature. The movie was already running. Then the main feature would go on. Then the second feature would start again. And we'd go, ah, this is where I came in. And we'd leave. 
I, I, I don't see how it's changed that much. Certainly in the last 50 years, I don't see how it's changed that much. Um, well, it's, it's funny when you talk about the kids, um, I always got the impression, and maybe I'm wrong, because I grew up a little later than you. I grew up with Sinbad movies and uh, Ray Harryhausen special effects movies, uh, Jason and the Argonauts, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. And it seemed to be that my sense was that the studios would produce a number of kid-friendly movies, but it was not their stock and trade, that they really were in the movie star and drama business. And once in a while, we'd get a, a movie like The Time Machine or a Sinbad movie as kind of, you know, for the kids. The, you know, and, and of course, I was going to kiddie matinees. Uh, it seems today, today, if you look at the output of Hollywood, the majority of movies are, seem to be tent poles. And it used to be a tent pole held up the, the, the release late. Now it seems like they're all tent poles. And they all seem to be in the science fiction, Marvel Universe, uh, that kind of uh, adventure epic, which seems to be designed for young people, not a 50-something guy. Uh, I, I, don't think, I don't think the seventh voyage of Sinbad was aimed at the faculty of Caltech. I, I, I think those movies were aimed for young people. I, I've been in trying to make films since the 70s. And you know that that's that was the time of of, with the exception of things like The Godfather, um, that was the time of Star Wars and Jaws and and it was young people who ran out to go to see the movies, right? And, and The Exorcist and and even even Love Story was a tentpole movie because it was based on a hugely successful book. Um, Grown-ups tend not to rush out to movie theaters. They tend to be selective in what they want to see in terms of who's in it or what the story is. Um, and there's also another factor, which I don't hear people talk about. Um, I always went to the Arclight Theater in here in, in, in Hollywood. The best screens, the best sound, the best presentation of a movie, as good as the Directors Guild, as good as the Academy, as good as anything. They're, they're absolutely brilliant uh, ways to present a movie. They, the movies that I wanted to go see, uh, my wife and I would go see, were, were not Marvel movies. Um, so we would go to see more adult movies at the Arclight Theater. Um, took an hour plus to get there and park. Um, and then you'd sit in this movie theater and half the people would have their phones on and they'd be texting or shining them at the screen or reading. Uh, and the other half would be talking as if they were in their dining room talking to somebody else. And, and the movie going experience to me became less and less enjoyable at the same time that the home movie going experience became better. I have an 85 inch television with, it's, a, it's, an, it's an 8K television. Um, it's, it's, ahead of, it's ahead of what is available right now. Um, has surround sound, has, has subwoofers. Um, I sit 
maybe six feet away from the screen. So I'm, I'm, you know, my, my, the room is shaking and, and, and it's, the, the picture is gorgeous and the sound is perfect and they're not a bunch of assholes texting or looking at their, 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 their phone screens. Um, I, I just don't think the movie going experience is as good as it was for a time. Uh, and that's at the time at it's commensurate with seeing a movie at home is way better than it used to be. You're no longer looking at a television set. True. You're, look, you're looking at a gigantic flat screen with brilliant sound and brilliant picture and nobody's talking. You know, the, 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 to me, and I, I, I laugh when I say this, I always felt that the saving grace for the movie theater business is young people on dates. You know, you can't if you want to smooch with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you generally don't want to do it on your parents couch with them in the kitchen. You go to the movies. Now, I don't know if that's still <laughs> I don't know if that's still a thing. Um, I remember growing up that the drive in movie theater was very much a. Uh, a lover's lane type situation. And of course, drive-in drive movies have gone, for the most part, to the uh, path of the dodo. But uh, it is interesting times. Um, I, I must tell you, and I think I told you before, that your 1978 film Capricorn One has become a, an evergreen for me personally. Uh, I have a hobby, I've told the listeners many times, where I record films on audio and I play them while I'm shaving in the morning or when I'm showering. I just I just play them and generally I pick films with great dialogue because if you watch a movie like Jurassic Park or listen to it on audio, all you see is a lot of silence. But Capricorn just plays and plays and plays and I'm delighted to be with the creator, not only the director, but the writer and the cinematographer. Uh, can you tell me a little bit how that project got off the ground? Uh, it obviously started as a screenplay. Yeah. Um, I was a, a not very good reporter for uh, from the time I was 20 and was with CBS for seven years. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of the space program. So that to me was the most extraordinary thing. I'm also the child of parents who said, if it's in the New York Times, it's true. And then my generation found out, well, if it's in the papers, it's not necessarily true. However, if it's on television, it's true. And then I remember watching coverage of, of an Apollo mission and CBS News used to cut away to McDonnell Douglas in St. Louis, and they would show a simulation of what, of what was happening with, with the Apollo mission, because it's a very complicated thing once the first stage uh, is, is jettisoned, then the second stage opens up, and it's this whole complicated thing. And I remember looking and going, shit, this is a one-camera story. How do you know it's true? Um, and then, so I, 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 when I started making film, uh, which I desperately wanted to do, I, I wrote, uh, I wrote Capricorn One. Most people, with the exception of you know, 
the 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 absolute you know the geniuses the, the Spielbergs and those people like that. Most of us have had careers that ebb and flow a bit, kind of like a roller coaster. And I wrote Capricorn One when I was in a trough and nobody wanted me. And the reaction to the screenplay, probably and me, was not just interesting idea if you like you change the third act or something it, it wasn't that it was could you get your car out of the parking lot and um, it was just like the, the firmest no please go home leave us alone and don't call us we'll call you and I, I kind of lay fallow for a couple of years and then uh, I was sitting with a, with a with a friend Paul Lazarus who's a producer and he said, what happened to that screenplay you wrote? I love it. I said, well, nobody wants it or me or both. Uh, he said, well, if I set it up, can you do it? Would, would you do it with me? And I said, sure. And he did set it up. Peter, yeah. I mean, when, when you said you got rejected all over the place and everybody said uh, no, did they give you any specific reasons or was it a typical no? No, it was as firm a no as, as, a, as a bank vault closing. Um, and as I said, it was a, probably a combination of where I was uh, at the time, and and I don't know. It, 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 I th I think the the film tapped into some kind of zeitgeist. I think I owe a lot of my career to H. R. Haldeman and Richard Nixon. Um, it also was a very strange thing that this film did have a weird thing. There was a time in movies, uh, I remember first with Rocky, where the audience stood up and cheered at a certain point. They just did. It was Pavlovian. Everybody got, I saw the movie a few times, and each time everybody, myself included, stood up and applauded at the same spot. Capricorn One had a thing, a specific frame, where the audience stood up and applauded. Uh, to the point where a friend of mine was on an airplane and they were showing the movie and he came out of the men's room and everybody started to applaud. And the first thing he did was check his fly. <laughs> Are you talking about Brolin running to the, uh, the podium at the end or is it? It's when the, it's when the cameras turn. Oh. It's when the television cameras turn to, 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 uh, to, to Jim and Elliot Gould. It's on that frame. Um, and when I screened the film, um, it happened and, uh, a very smart, uh, executive came to me and said, kid, you're going to have a lot of brand new best friends tomorrow. You better learn how to deal with it. Um, Warner brothers said, uh, the chairman of Warner brothers at the time was a man named Ted Ashley, uh, he said, well, you know, Hymas has a lot of friends in Los Angeles. Hey, I didn't have that many friends in Los Angeles. I don't have that many friends anywhere. Um, so the guy who was head of marketing said, well, pick another city. So Ashley said, uh, Seattle. So we went to Seattle. And the same thing happened on the same frame. And, and I remember my... my this guy I became very close friends with later 
this was a time of pay phones, got on a pay phone in, in, in the lobby of the theater and called Ted Ashley and said, I don't think Peter Himes has this many friends in Seattle. Um, <laughs> but then we screened the film all across the country. And it was at a time when, when you previewed a film, it just said major studio preview. It didn't say what the film was. Right. Um, it was potluck. Uh, yeah. And by the time we previewed the film here in Los Angeles, it was at the National Theater in Westwood. Um, and I lived in Westwood at the time. And my wife and I walked to the theater and I'm sitting there shaking because I figured there wasn't going to be a soul there. And the place was packed. And the manager of the theater came to me and said, we've been getting phone calls all day long saying, is this Capricorn one? Um, so, you know, as my aunt Tess would say, go figure. I, I, it's my, my favorite line probably in all of movies is uh, a, a lovely movie that Arthur Penn made. Um, with Chief, with with Dustin Hoffman and Chief Dan George, oh, a little big man, little big man, yeah, and Faye Dunaway, and at, at the end of the movie, the Chief says to his grandson, "It's a it's a it's a lovely way to die. It's a beautiful day to die." And he, he says, "Come on with me," and he takes his grandson up. They go up the top of the mountain, and Chief Dan George lies down, closes his eyes, says the magic words, uh, and it rains. And he opens up his eyes, and he. He says, I'm not, I'm not dead yet, am I? And Hoffman says, no. And he gets up and he brushes his back of his jeans off and they start walking down the mountain. And the chief says, you know, sometimes the magic works and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> uh, and that is, that, that is that's kind of my mantra. It just really is. And we screen the movie all across the country. The same thing happens over and over and over again. Uh, I am now in London shooting a film and the, my friend Andy, the marketing guy, calls me up and says, how does it feel to be the luckiest guy in England? I said, what do you mean? He said, Dick Dunner just told Warner Brothers he can't deliver Superman for the summer. I said, why does that make me lucky? He said, Warner Brothers does not have a summer movie. You're it. Uh, so you're going to get the budget, you're going to get the bookings, you're going to get the whole thing that Superman was going to get. And I said, well, after all these previews and all this stuff, what would have happened? He said, you would have opened up in two theaters in, in Atlanta. So, wow. you know, sometimes the magic works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. So you said that Paul Lazarus was, uh, was a friend of yours who came to you? How, how had you known him from? Uh, we started to literally, I was learning how to play tennis, not very well. And we used to play tennis together. Oh. And and we were sitting up, it was up in Mulholland. It was somebody's court in Mulholland. And uh, he just said to me, he owed money on, on taxes or something like that. And he said, if I can put this together, what would you do with me? And I said, absolutely. How how big a budget were you given? Uh, a little less than five million dollars. Less than five million. So let's talk a little bit about the casting process. Uh, very interesting cast. Um, was Elliot Gould your your first choice to play uh, the reporter? 
Yeah, everybody in that movie was my first choice. Oh, fabulous. Uh, uh, everybody. I had worked with Elliot. I did my first film with Elliot. It was a cop film. Matter of fact, Bust. yes, I, I, I mean, you're not very impressed with who you're talking to right now, except I, I, I have something that no other film director has. I've never won an Oscar. I've never won a Golden Globe. I've never won an AFI Achievement Award. However, I am the only film director who's had two leading men both tried and acquitted for the first degree murder of their wives. <laughs> well, wait, back up a little bit, Peter. You just said I'm not very impressed with you. Where did you get that idea? <laughs> well, that, that's that's my that's what I have. I don't have anything else. Well, I, I yes, yes, I <laughs> yes, I'm aware of uh, O.J. and Robert Blake, of course, of course. Um, <clears throat> now, O.J. Simpson in casting, yeah. Go ahead. OJ was not my first choice. OJ was the company's choice uh, because he was very, very famous. Uh, there was an actor named Robert Hooks who I wanted. Uh, OJ's casting is what I guess in casting parlance would be considered stunt casting. Yeah, sure. And uh, yeah, no, I mean, OJ had uh, previously done Towering Inferno and some other things, and I, I could see that. Um, uh, what was just what's really nice about this movie is not just the the performers, and I think they were all excellent. But I thought you you did something really marvelous with your dialogue. I think you know, the, the, and again, I'm I'm going to blow smoke up your uh, behind here. But I I find that a lot. First of all, and I again we'll go back on the subject of today's movies. I don't think enough attention these days is paid to dialogue. I, you know, I, I'm a nut about it. I'm quoting. Have you, have you seen a film written by Aaron Sorkin? Have, have, have you okay, seen? Okay, I will give you. I will. Yeah, I will give you. How about Quentin Tarantino? They're the exception. I, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but the, the thing is, you know, I, listen. There's always good movies, and there's always good dialogue around. But it seems to me. And again, I'm just I'm going back to 78 and Capricorn. I thought you captured a really nice zeitgeist with your dialogue, with the just the, the relationship, uh, the, the um, you know, Gould is an interesting character. I, I, his character is an interesting guy. I mean, he's 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 very glib and particularly when he's talking to um, his girlfriend. Um, and I'm going to forget her name. Um, Karen Black, who who just obviously they have an interesting relationship. Uh, uh, not quite sure where it's going, and it's fun. And then I, and then I thought that Hal Holbrook's casting was also very interesting. Well, when when you when you write, when one writes, uh, I grew up. Uh, my oldest friend and uh, was a, a rather brilliant television writer producer named Stephen Bochco, and, and Stephen coined the phrase word spitters. Uh, and and when you, when you are a fairly long-winded writer like I am, and you're kind of a annoying, wise-ass New York writer like I am, uh, at best, you you long for, you pine for word spitters because I loved writing speeches. Uh, and poor Hal Holbrook had, you know, one of the 
longest speeches I ever wrote in my life. And, and he just made it, he just made it make sense. Uh, you're, ta you're talking about when he's introducing the situation to the three astronauts. He does the entire, he does the, in, 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 he does the entire explanation of the premise of the film in one speech. Uh, and, and he does it hopefully in a way that's interesting. Uh, but it's how, you know, I, I, directing actors is not telling actors how to do something. Directing actors is casting actors. And when you cast actors, you, you basically let them be, you know, it's like, it's, it's like being the, the coach or general manager of a, a baseball or a football team. You know, you, you, you don't, you don't tell Mookie Betts how to swing. Um, you, you try to sign Mookie Betts and they're everybody's going to try to sign Aaron judge. Um, what you try to do, I think as a director is, is at least in my view is, is you try to create a place where actors feel wonderful and feel brave and the braver they feel the more chances they'll take and the more chances they take the more you are surprised and i can honestly say the saddest days i ever had staggering home to my hotel room or my home after a day shooting was those days where i shot what i expected mm. it's it, it, it's the days where, where somebody just says something or does something or shrugs or picks up something or doesn't pick up something or sits down, whatever they do, um, the more fertile they are, the more interesting they are. Um, you, you know, you were, sometimes you can help a little bit with context. That, that's about it. When you were going to the movies when you were a kid, do you, do you remember certain movies that perhaps influenced you down the road when you became a director? Sure. Oh yeah. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I come from a theatrical family. My, my, my father was in the theater. My grandfather was in the theater. Um, I, I was born and raised in New York. So I went to the cinema ones and the, and the, the, the Carnegie cinemas. And I, I went to the best imported, movies. I saw the third man when I was a little kid. I, you know, I, I, I saw Diabolique when I was, uh, when I was a little kid. And I'd say when, when I was, when, when, when I saw, uh, Great Expectations, uh, and then I began to fiendishly read about David Lean and began to idolize David Lean and even began to roll my shirt sleeves up above my elbow the way I saw photographs of him. And then I, 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 I was not a little kid. When I saw Lawrence of Arabia, I remember sitting in the, in the theater and I remember feeling the screen open up. I just, I just, the screen just got bigger than I had ever seen it. Um, and I, I, I went to art school from the time I was eight years old. Um, I spent my life trying to put two words together that elicited a response uh, to draw two lines together that maybe please people. Um, nothing seemed to amalgamate 
everything that I loved and was passionate about more than a movie in terms of the written word, in terms of, I studied photography. I studied, I studied it classically. I mean, I actually apprenticed for a portrait photographer. I, 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 I could break down and repair eight by 10 plate cameras. I mean, I, I could do those things. Um, it's just it's it's always been my passion sure sure um let's talk a little bit of the logistics for capricorn um um your desert scenes when the when the light the the jet lands and the, the three astronauts are cast adrift where did you film those in mojave in mojave okay yeah and did you stay out there or was it a commute or did you basically no, no, no. I was there for a couple of months. Really? Oh yeah. And then the base where they have been housed, that abandoned Air Force base, where was that? Uh, the 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 interior of the set was was at the, the old uh, CBS Studio Center, the Radford uh, lot on, in in the valley. Right. Um, so that's where you know the, the the capsule and the those things were, and then uh, the re the rest we, we built some sets some small sets uh, in the desert, and did a lot of a lot of stuff in you know caves and things like that. Yes, very very effective, very effective. Um, the uh... an incredibly game actor too. I have to tell you, Jim Brolin was phenomenal in terms of. First place, I thought it was terrific, and secondly, he was just game for everything. I mean, he he had a scorpion run across his face. He, you know, he did all these things, and it, it just made it all work. Yeah, he has a battle with a snake. Yeah, that wasn't as scary to me as a scorpion running right across his cheek. Well, then, then of course you've got this crazy. Well, of course the movie is has a number of crazy chases. Uh, in fact, I read one of the. Uh, reviews of the film are one of the references they they equated it to a little bit of uh, Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint and North by Northwest. And I thought that was a nice compliment for the film. By the by the way, Peter was Capricorn One always the title. Yes. Got it. It, it, it was, <laughs> and I remember when when we got the green light, and I designed the the kind of poster, the, the logo poster. And I had this, you know, this letter set where you, you, you carefully take these letters and you put them on. And I did the, the, the rocket and the sun rising in between the rocket and the gantry. And then I wrote out, I wrote the whole thing out, spent hours and hours and hours at my new office. And I suddenly stood up at my desk and I wrote, I looked and I went, Capricorn Ohm? What the hell is Capricorn Ohm? Um, and I, 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 I ran to dictionaries and stuff, and it turns out one is O-N-E. I just, I spent so much time being close to it, it made no sense to me. <laughs> um, getting back to the chase sequences, there's pr some pretty, pretty amazing chase sequences, or even just sequences that involved a great deal of action. When, when, when uh, Robert, uh, Elliot's character loses control of his car because they've uh, sabotaged it. Where did you shoot all that craziness? Long Beach. Uh, 
and, and the Long Beach Bridge and uh, the 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 coordinator for that sequence was a very, very, very uh, well-known stunt coordinator named Bill Hickman, who had done Bullet, uh, not too shabby. Um, and in this sequence with, with Elliot losing control of the car, there's no shot of the car. If you look at it, the only time you see anything is when the car goes over the bridge. Otherwise, there's no shot of the car. There's no driveway. There's nothing. And Bill Hickman kept on telling me, he said, kid, you're screwing this thing up. This is just a pile of shit. It's not going to work. You got to see the car. And I just, I just went, no, I've got to try this my way. So I, I reached a point where when experienced people tell me something's not good, I tend to think maybe it's going to work. So uh, jog my memory here. When, when the car goes into the drink, you don't see that or? Yeah, that's the only time. And and even that's almost all point of view, uh, with a camera mounted on the on the front of the car. Right, as it goes off the bridge. God, was that one of those old IMO type cameras they used to attach to things? Um, it was. It was a yeah. It was a, it was an IMO camera, except it had a, a Panavision lens, and the head of Panavision at the time was a man named Robert Gottschalk, who screamed and yelled at me because we. we it, wrecked the lens and and um he, he later on he forgave me except it, it was i was in trouble did anybody else scream at you on this movie no we were kind of under the radar because it, it it you know it it, it it was very inexpensive warner brothers had 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 warner brothers was concentrating on on justifiably so on superman and 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 things like that so and this was originally produced by lou grade so it was it was not a warner brothers warner brothers movie it was a warner brothers kind of pickup movie so they didn't have much money in it uh so they how, never never believed in it how did lou grade come into the picture what was his job paul he he financed it oh okay so the studio got offshore financing for this got it Lou Grade financed it and had a deal. He had an output deal with Warner Brothers. Um, and because Warner Brothers had so little money in it, they, they, that's why it was going to schedule to open in two theaters in Atlanta. Got it. The other amazing chase sequence uh, involved those helicopters and Telly's uh, crop dusting plane. That that I think I read somewhere that w one of the stunt guys was saying it was a pretty dangerous chase. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about the genesis of that in your screenplay? Had you originally written that it would be a crop duster being chased by oh. helicopters? Yes. Oh yeah. Um, a brilliant director, George Roy Hill, made a film called The Great Waldo Pepper, uh, and and besides being a, a, a brilliant director. He also knew a lot about flying. And there was a lot of very intricate flying in, in Waldo Pepper. And somehow or other, in my in the height of my ignorance and arrogance, which is a, a very, very lethal combination, um, it didn't really work for me. And 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 I, I drew it out and drew it out. And I, I kind of went, oh, I got it. 
he has mounted a camera on the wing of an airplane and like a low horizon, there's the wing of the airplane. And then he'd, he'd spin the airplane. And I, re and I realized that by doing that, the audience didn't spin. Everything around it spun, except the audience didn't spin. So I went, I want to spin the audience, not, not the world. Excuse uh, me. What do what do you mean by spin the audience? Well, when when the when a plane's doing when a plane is rolling, when a plane is banking, when a plane is diving, I I I, I didn't want the anything to steady the audience. I wanted the audience to experience the sensation of doing that. So I had one of the great pilots of the world. We had a, quite a collection. I mean, a man named Frank Tallman, who was um, he and Paul Mance, you know were the pioneers in, in, in this stuff. Frank did Catch-22 and he, he's the guy who ta uh, uh, taxied a plane, uh, flew a plane actually, and then had the wings knocked off by two trees and he flew a plane through billboards and he's done all of those things. He's an, an extraordinary gentleman. So Frank flew um, the steerman, he, he flew the, the biplane and maybe the best helicopter pilot in the world at that time, a guy named David Jones, flew that the, the Chase helicopter. And we designed a mount where you basically took a metal bridge chair and bolted it outside of a helicopter and then put what's called a Tyler mount where you could, where you could uh, bank, bank the camera. Uh, and we, we that helicopter sometimes where the rotor of the helicopter was over the tail of the of, of, of the, the plane uh, had a guy who was was a wing walker he loved he actually took a nap on on on, on the, the wing of the plane uh, this, is, this is the guy playing james brolin yeah it was jim's double on on the on the plane um and he was a professional wing walker and he, he did air shows and stunt things um where are you by the way uh i i split the operating of the camera uh with a, a, a guy named david butler um and it, it was you know it was it was tough it was if 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 i knew then what i know now i never would have done it i mean it was i kept on i kept on saying let's get closer let's get closer and 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 the, the point the point of the mountain the point of designing that the, the mount was you could shoot aft and you could shoot forward. Um, was when when the plane banked, I went like that with the camera to match the, the plane banking, so the world moved, the audience moved, um, but there was nothing to steady them. Uh, by the, by the way, that, that looked like we were above the Grand Canyon. Was that c correct, or is that oh, another Red Rock Canyon? Red Rock Canyon. It's in it's in the Mojave Desert. Oh, okay. So it's Red Rock. Okay. Yeah. And, if, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think John Belushi is flying over that in 1941. It, it seemed similar. It, it might be. <laughs> uh, but but hair raising chase and. Um, it was just a lot of fun. Well, of course, the your 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 um, 
your whole uh, scripted reference to the bad guys, never seeing them per se, you just see their helicopters. And then uh, I, I guess one of the real pluses of the movie as well, accenting your great writing and directing was Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, you know, it, I, I, I'll say this again, sometimes the magic works and sometimes it doesn't. It was at a time where a lot of the composition of uh, for for a, a film score, they weren't pre-recorded things. They weren't computerized things. You didn't hear an orchestra. You, some things were tinkled on a piano. You really didn't know. I think that score is absolutely phenomenal. I think I think you know, no one needs me to compliment Jerry Goldsmith in terms of being one of the more talented composers of the world, except. That's a home run. That's one of the greatest scores. It's certainly one of the greatest scores I ever had, was the beneficiary of. And certainly, I think it's one of the better scores written for movies. I think it's just an absolutely unique, phenomenal score. The one contribution I made, and it's slight, was I said, again, <laughs> not knowing jack shit about anything, I, I said to him, you know, when I sit in a movie theater and 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 I hear music, I hear like violins are coming from the right, and and I hear like bass violins are coming from the left, and I don't want to hear that. I don't want to know where they're coming from. Them. I I I I I I I want the music to be around everybody. So Jerry said, "Well, here's what we'll do," and he he came up with the idea of taking two 45-piece orchestras and one to the right, one to the left, each playing the same thing. Uh, so that there was full stereo and you get the full feeling of stereo, except it just it just washed over everybody. Uh, and it worked. I've, never, I've actually never heard of anybody doing that. That sounds very novel. Um, well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Well, I, I, I think starting from the the overture, just not just impressive was having two guys formally tried and acquitted for the first degree murder of their wives. Here's a, an obvious observation for me. I'm sorry for saying this, but I assume that you got no cooperation from NASA. You assume wrong. Uh -huh. uh, they they. First place, from my time at, at, at CBS, I had all the mission books. I had all the, 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 the actual, every transmission from, from Apollo 17. So I had all that. So I, I know what, you know, Opico and Seco and all those things, I know what they mean. I know when they're said and how they were said. Um, we built, the most accurate replica of the lunar ascent and descent module uh, that existed in the world. At one point, NASA wanted it. Uh, uh, they were talking about the Smithsonian, and, and we, we couldn't get it out the door. Uh, it was it was too big to get out the stage door. Um, I will tell you again, my most vivid memory of making that film was the. The, the 
Martian surface, you know, the, 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 we had already landed on Mars, uh, you know, with, with, and send photographs back. So we knew exactly what it was like. So, um, we had this big stage at Bradford and this absolutely brilliantly crafted, um, ascent and descent module and the Martian surface and rocks. And it was, it was, you know, it was a, a, a dream. And the first day of shooting on that set, uh, the production is on a lovely man named Al Brenner. And I said, I, I, can we just go on the stage? It's like six o'clock in the morning before anyone's there. I just, just put the house lights on and just let me see it. So I walked up on the stage and there was Mars and there was the it was the lander. There was the, there was the thing. It was there. Uh, it's what I thought of a couple of years before and hoped for. And pristine surface. And then Al suddenly motioned to me. And I walked over to where he was and he was looking down. And there were cat prints. There were paw prints on, on Mars. And we followed them over to the lander and right by the, the leg of the lander was a cat dump. And that, <laughs> that was my first experience. Of all of my Hollywood dreams coming through. <laughs> I remember saying to Al, what a critic. That's, that's, that, that, some people might say that was a bad omen, but I don't think it really was. No. <laughs> Scripts are changed. Things things are altered during the course of production. What percentage of your original screenplay is on screen? One hundred percent. Fabulous. So that's 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 unusual. But then again, you're directing, so you can't uh, have the writer do major rewrites because yeah. you also wrote it. Yeah. One of the characters I, I just love in terms of his uh, his sarcasm and sense of humor is Sam Waterston's character. He's kind of like the comic side of this movie. And this movie is like North by Northwest, the Hitchcock movie, has some great comedy in it, or at least humor. Um, did, was there somebody who motivated that character? Did you, did you base it on anybody? Because having a, a, a comedy... I don't know. You know, when you, when, when you, when you draw, you paint, you, you see stuff. When you... When, when you write, you hear stuff. It's it's the way I speak. It's the way I talk. It's it's I'm afflicted with what I call my West Side of New York wise ass dialogue, and it's it's just what I am. I'm, I'm sure it gets very tiresome. Well, not in that film. And in fact, the, the I love the relationship between the head of uh, NASA and the the vice president. Uh, uh, that that repartee was pretty funny, especially when the vice president is uh, looking through his binoculars at the woman's ass and my wife's ass. <laughs> that is, that is, you know, the only time I've ever done that is my wife's ass. Oh, oh, really? There's a bit of trivia. <laughs> well, that's 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 pretty funny, Peter. Um, well, we've been listening. We've been listening to Peter Himes really dig into Capricorn One. Um, the movie continues to just play and play. I hope you get an occasional residual check a little bit, perhaps. 
Oh no, no, long gone, long gone. Yeah, yeah, and that's okay. I just hope. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that you like it. I'm thrilled that people still see it or know or hear about it. Uh, that's fun. They, they, you know, films can last so. Forever, forever. Um, you know, William Goldman, William Goldman said. Let's face it, we've all read Shakespeare. So we start out knowing we're second rate. Uh, so when something lasts, it's fun. What, what do you, uh, writers never really stop writing. Uh, they usually stop writing when their, uh, their ticker stops, but are you working on anything at the moment? Kind of, kind of. I'm, 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 I'm going through a bit of a writer's block, which I, said to somebody it's bigger than Trump's wall. Um, <laughs> I, I, I know, you know, writing is a very, very, very unpleasant thing to do. I, I know there are some people who love writing. Uh, I hate every part of it. I hate having to think of something because uh, that's excruciating. Then I hate when you actually think of something because then you have to write it. Then I hate the writing process because it's, it's so solitary. And then I hate when you're done because then other people are going to read it, tell you what they don't like. So there's, there's no good part of writing. Uh, well, it depends because I've been writing for nine years with a comedy writing partner. And I have to tell you that with a partner, at least writing comedy, you can share the grief and the joy if there is any. Uh, but I know that when I've tried to write by myself, it's very difficult. So, I mean, the fact that you could write what you do by yourself, I think is amazing. Um, so you say you're having a block right now on this current project? Yeah, I am, I am. Except again, I, 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 I look at stuff that Aaron Sorkin has written. I look at stuff that Tony Kushner has written. I look at, I look at, I look at stuff that Quentin Tarantino has written. I, I'm not in that league. There's just a difference. No, I hear you. I hear it's you. It's the way I feel when I see Spielberg's movie, or I, I, I see Alfonso Caron's movie. You know what I mean? I, I, I look at Gravity. I just saw it again the other night. I, 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 my God, how did he do that? Now, that's interesting that you should mention Gravity, Peter, because I saw it in the movie theater, so and I. I was completely riveted. I mean, I was in space with Sandy Bullock and Clooney, and I felt every good. And yet I watched the movie again on the TV at home. Wow. And I lost the complete whole feeling of that movie because I heard the faucet dripping in the kitchen. I heard a toilet flush. I was completely taken out of the movie. And I think that's one of the true joys of seeing movies in theaters is there are no distractions. Now, granted, the idiots who turn on their facocta cell phones, you know, obviously that's a pain. An awful lot of them. And there are an awful lot of people who talk and an awful lot of people who crinkle up candy wrappers and stuff. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think people know how to behave. I don't think, you know, it, it, it's, I'm, I'm not saying people have to wear tuxedos to dinner. I'm not saying, you know, it, 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 you have to go back to old times, except I was brought up in the theater and you have to be respectful when you, when, when they're actors on a stage. 
When Capricorn One opened, I know that you'd gone through multiple screening processes for the film, and it was very enjoyable for you. Did you do the typical Friday night making the rounds in Westwood to see the movie playing with paying audiences? I, I was in London when it opened. Uh, oh, you I were came, making Hanover Street, right? I, I came back two weeks later. Uh, and it was, you know, w when an audience has decided that a movie is going to be successful, they make it successful. And 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 uh, I, I, I walked from the theater and they were selling Mars cookies. And I mean, it, it was it was lines around the block and I walked in and I announced my name to the theater manager and I thought I was about the most talented guy around and I sat in the back and everybody ran into get their seats in the, in, the, in, the, in the movie theater and the lights went down and the Warner Brothers logo came on and people applauded and then by that point I was the most gifted filmmaker that ever walked the earth. Um, I don't think I exhaled for 20 minutes. <laughs> then the movie came on, and about two or three minutes in, I suddenly went, oh my god, it, it looks like my stuff. Uh, they're going to catch me. They're going to find out I'm in the theater, and they're going to catch me. And I ran home, because I, I lived near the theater. Um, and I got, you know, closed the door to my house, and put myself against the door. And I was envisioning like the mobs from Frankenstein with torches coming up my street. <laughs> I've never seen a film that I've made since then. Once, once I can't make it better, it's too painful. It's just too painful. All I can Here see, all I can see is what's wrong. Well, this has been wonderful. Uh, I, you know, um, we could talk about some other of your films, but I wanted to focus on this one this time because it has such, it was such a personal, fun film for me, which continues to deliver years later. And thank you for your hard work on that film and, and your creativity. Thank you for your kindness. I really appreciate it. We've been listening to Peter Himes, director, writer, cinematographer. You've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. It's always Saturday night here. And... Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you, everyone.